Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. It was bittersweet of a night for fans of the U.S. men's national team on one hand, Team Awea celebrated his birthday and Christian Pulisic got on the score sheet at Stamford Bridge, while elsewhere, Weston McKinney hobbled off the field against Villarreal. I'm Heath Pierce, and I'm joined by Jimmy and Jonathan to break down Tuesday's Champions League action. K. Golasso begins right now. Now, everyone, if you're watching this live on YouTube, like the video, go on. It only takes a second, and it costs you nothing. More likes means we get K. Golasso in front of more eyeballs, and it helps us grow, and that's what we want to do so we can make this community bigger and better. And some of you are listening to this in podcast form. That's nice of you. You know, it's even nicer, as we usually say. Subscribing to the Kegel Also podcast wherever you get your podcast and take a minute to leave a glowing rating and a review. Life hack, you can do that right now while you listen to this. What is going on, Jimmy Conrad, JJ? Appreciate you guys joining me. JJ, we'll start with you. I mean, what's your takeaways from this Chelsea Lille match? Obviously, the man who is our specialist around the French league, uh, we didn't get to see on a selfish level. Our team, Oweya, we got to see him have a birthday, uh, and it was celebrated, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, with a goal from uh, Christian Pulisic. What, was your t- what were your main takeaways, I guess, uh, from this match? I hope you guys can subtitle my French right now. <laughs> that's my main takeaway. That's my main takeaway. That was so this. French. That was so French. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, it's... Um, I mean, on, on the one hand... Uh, you know, I think we should give Lille credit because they didn't collapse when I thought they would early on conceding that goal. Uh, I really feared the worst for them. They kept it respectable, which was my pre-match prediction. But also at the same time, I mean, it was a pretty tedious watch. Uh, you kind of knew that Lille were basically fighting to keep it one goal uh, in it going back to to France. You know, they now really face an uphill task being two goals down. I mean, obviously, anything can happen in 90 minutes, especially when you play at home in the second leg of a game uh, like this. But really, do I see Lille being able to turn the tide against this Chelsea side? No, I don't. I didn't see enough from them tonight. I will add that I think that the big positive for them, the, the really big positive for them was Renato Sanchez. I thought he was he was fantastic. And I think if you get Jonathan David into a game like that, anything can happen. But they didn't. They weren't, they weren't able to do enough. You know, Bamba was hustling as best he could up top. You know, just like, like Timo Weir was saying before the before the game in our interview with him, it hasn't clicked. hasn't clicked for Lille season. Didn't click for them here. Uh, you know, and you just kind of hope for them that it will do between now and the end of the season, so they can at least get themselves back into Europe via the league. Okay, let's let's focus on Lille really quick here, JJ, because I have some questions for you. Timo Weir was expected to start, doesn't start, and then doesn't even come off the bench. So he's got uh, a couple older guys, Barack Yilmaz, that comes off the bench, and then you got. Hate him or love him, the Ben timeless, Arfa. The this, timeless Ben Arfa and ben, uh, I mean, just like, well, <laughs> It's not like Onana was out there lighting it up. You know, you could have put Renato Sanchez into the middle and brought on Awea, maybe give you a little bit more something out wide. Are you surprised that Awea didn't get to play at all? Uh, I mean, I'm surprised he didn't get to play at all. I did think that he'd come on. Uh, you know, I thought they could have used his energy and definitely needed more impetus in attack. Was I surprised that he didn't start? No, not 
so much. You know, I think Gorvanek was always going to try to be pragmatic. I mean, it's kind of a battle of who's going to be most pragmatic out of Gorvanek and, and Tuchel on, on these kind of nights. Uh, obviously, Tuchel won that battle. Um, but, you know, I think you really start to see the limitations of this Lille side now. And I'd actually be quite worried about the future for them when you look. You know, it's not just the attackers. It's not just Yilmaz. Uh, you know, it's not just Ben Arthur coming off the bench who are like sort of in their mid-30s. You've got Jose Fonch uh, at the back, you know, pushing 40. You've got Benjamin Andre. He's also into his 30s in the midfield. This is an aging team, uh, you know, and it's a team that doesn't really have any ability to, to reinvent itself either given the project at Lille. They've just been smacked with some punishment by the Court of Arbitration for Sport regarding Rafa Liao as well. So... You know, I, I don't understand why there was absolutely zero involvement of Weyer in this kind of game because they're going to need him going forward. Uh, you know, and if they don't, uh, you know, consider him to sort of be a part of the project uh, moving forward. I don't know, maybe they feel he's been too injury prone since arriving, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, not not consistent enough. They're going to need to move him on and try to get a, a good transfer fee for him. And you're not going to be able to build his value up if you're not actually playing him. And I, you know, I thought that it was... It was a bit of a harsh uh, decision by Gorvanek to not go for him, especially, uh, you know, when you're bringing off, uh, you know, the likes of Jonathan David in the in the last 10 minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Jimmy, let me ask you this. I mean, obviously, as Timo Weah said, they haven't clicked all seasons, but here they are in the knockout rounds of the Champions League. And really, two goals back, which I think is too large of a gap to cover if you looked at them today. And I agree with you, JJ. Renato Sanchez was unbelievable. He he looked at a, at a pace and, a, and an emphasis to go forward that I haven't seen in a while, especially... Uh, when he when he's pulled out wide. But Jimmy, do you think that they're overperforming and that's what's gotten them here? Because it seems like you have to click on some level to reach the knockout rounds of, of the Champions League. And obviously their form in the league is very different than, than being in the knockout rounds of the Champions League. But I mean, what is it that they're missing? When you look at the tools on paper, it seems like they at least have some strengths that they should be... Um, uh, it seems like they're underperforming in the league and maybe maybe performing at expectations in the Champions League when you look at the team that they have. I don't know if you take into context what's happened to them over the last year. Obviously, they were somewhat the surprise winners of Liga. I would say definitely surprised winners of Liga last season. And then their manager takes off and he's gone. He leaves to go to Nice. He's actually done quite well with Nice uh, this particular season. So you lose that and you lose that influence and anything you were trying to build, the culture, the environment, whatever it may be. And then on top of that, because you're so successful and because you have some talented players, people want to come buy your players. So then... They lose Mike Mignon, their goalkeeper to AC Milan. Sumari goes to Leicester City. Uh, Ikone goes to Fiorentina, whether that's over the summer or during the January transfer window. Now you're starting to get plucked. And then you add injuries on top of that. And, and then you have a new manager who's got his own style. And it just makes sense to me why they're currently 11th in, in the league table for them in France. But they're on and the that, same amount of losses as Strasbourg and Nice. I mean, you're, you're talking about what looks like, and I would love your take, JJ, on this as, as well. When I mean, Jimmy wraps this thought up, it's just like, is it a game of moments for them? Is it moments that are costing them? Because you look on paper, they're at 11th, but their seven losses is the same as Nice, and it's the same as Strasbourg, and it's the I, I draws to the... I just I think know. there's a lack of consistency there, and it's going to be tough, especially now if you have Jonathan David, who's now going to try to be on display, right? Renato Sanchez probably thinking we're going to move in the summer. And then you got Sven Botman, who also like, I'm probably going to move in the summer as well. So you got three guys that are in the spine of your team that are some of your younger players, to JJ's point. That's not helping the team if those players move. So how can you ever really build anything? They might make some coin off of these players, but, you know, I don't know if that's going to help them actually be competitive moving forward. It's, it's, I'd, I'd be kind of frustrated if I was a Lille fan at the moment. 
Is it a yeah, full overhaul, JJ? Is it a full overhaul? I mean, obviously, like Jimmy mentioned, they're going to sell three, four players that they can make some bank on. And then you said there's obviously the players that are up there in age that they're going to have to make changes and or move on as well. I mean, are we looking at what seems like the, the end of a very short era of, of success at, at Lille? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, at the end of the day, Lille absolutely needs some money this summer. They're going to have to move players on, especially if they now uh, are going to have to consider those extra millions for Rafael Leao as well. Uh, it's it, it's not it's not an ideal situation. Uh, you know, I think that Lille made the best of it, managed to 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 get the the title win over the line in Ligue 1, which was huge, but. You know, the players expected a fire sale last summer. It didn't materialize. You know, Renato Sanchez could quite easily have been playing for another club uh, tonight. You know, the fact that he was even there for Lille, uh, you know, was quite fortuitous given that he picked up an injury at the, at the wrong time. He was wanted again in January. I know clubs in the Premier League, like Wolverhampton Wanderers, for example, are keeping a, a keen eye on what's going on with him. A lot of guys are going to move on this summer. Uh, and I fear for Lille that the only guys who are really going to stick around are those older ones who aren't really going to add that much in the future. I mean, obviously, you know, Lille have fantastic facilities. You know, they're an established league on club and they're not actually that far away from the European places. You know, the great thing about, one of the great things about Ligue 1 is that, you know, the, the table can change, you know, in the matter of sort of two games, you know, if a team strings together two victories, suddenly they're moving up the places. And if you, you lose a couple in a row, you're going, to, you're dropping down quite substantially. I think that they can still close the gap on Europe. I don't think that they'll qualify for the Champions League, but I do think they can still salvage Europa League. And that for me would be a positive. You know, I, I, I think there's always going to be some, uh, you know, sort of step down in, in consistency and motivation when you've won a league title, you know, and, and suddenly, you know, you've you've got that elation that comes with it, and like Jimmy said, you know, you've got a number of key characters moving on. Mignon, uh, Galtier. It was clear that they were moving on within forty eight hours after the title was sewn up. So, you know, I think naturally, uh, you know, a lot of people's heads have been in different places so far this season, which probably accounts for, uh, you know, what uh, what Weyer was saying. And also, I noticed there was a comment from Jackie D about why Weyer plays uh, so much better for the U.S. men's national team than he does for Lille, and and he said something really interesting in that interview uh, that I was doing with him where he said basically feels in his happy place where he can sort of do anything uh, you know do a million stepovers or something like that I think he mentioned uh, you know he he basically just feels more in his own skin when he's with the U.S. men's national team than he does with Lille and I felt that was quite telling about the situation in general. I will say that I've been highly critical of those useless stepovers that he's done at times uh, on the national team, but I'm glad he I'm glad he feels free when he's doing them. And, and for any, anybody that's watching this right now, uh, where do you want to see Timo Weah next? We obviously saw Conrad De La Fuente come in. That also hasn't come to fruition. Where do we want to see these players, but Timo Weah in specific, where do you think the, the right club is for him next? And also make sure that you uh, like and comment on, on these videos and then subscribe if you haven't already. We want to keep you guys part of this community and growing this community so jimmy let me ask you this let's shift back to chelsea since you let's wore the chelsea it. shirt today um your fourth or, or maybe fifth, fifth, fifth favorite team uh in the, in the premier league lukaku <laughs> dropped um i mean just uh, what kind of statement do you think that is do you think it's a rotation or is this a, a statement that's being made and then on top of that you actually saw a performance come together where where kai havertz actually did an okay job and i know this is a the carousel of 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 uh of players they're putting into that position to just sort of fill that void. But clearly Lukaku hasn't done the job. I mean, what do you, what do you take away from the lineup that they put out there and the formation that they put out with Pulisic and Ziyech underneath? 
Well, I'm curious to see what Tuchel's comments are about it after the game, just to see if we can unpack it and see if there's anything in between the lines of what he's saying. They have a big game against Liverpool in the League Cup final this weekend. And we could argue that Lukaku matching up against Van Dyke and or Matip or Gomez, whoever the other center back is, probably a little bit more favorable to have a, a big guy like uh, Lukaku to occupy them with as opposed to Havertz, who a little more frail than, than Lukaku, I would say. But it worked out. Havertz, I thought, was was doing a good job of looking to combine, get in behind, just be a bit of a nuisance. Lille's marking on the corner kick was uh, shambolic, I think is the word I'm going to use. Mm. The fact that they didn't mark him at all is probably a little bit disappointing for, for Lille, given that uh, those types of plays have nothing to do with talent and just desire. But he also missed a sitter right before that. You know, it actually sp- I think that spoke to his mentality because maybe a Havertz of, of before under Tuchel when he first joined you know, he missed that sitter and that would impact him the rest of the game. So for him to get a goal, you know, five minutes after after missing the sitter, I think really speaks to his maturity and his continued evolution as a player. You know, I'm curious what what Pulisic, I would love to get some insight from Pulisic about who he likes to play with. And is it Lukaku? Is it Havertz? I mean, who's his ideal striker of choice? But um, it's a tough one. I, I, I think that Lukaku will start this weekend. However, Havertz does have a knack of scoring goals in big finals for for Chelsea whether it's the Champions League or the FIFA Club World Cup game uh, final so that's a tough I don't know I don't know what uh, Tuchel's gonna elect to do but I do feel like I'll be an apologist for Lukaku I, it's not all his fault that he only had seven touches this past weekend against Crystal Palace the lineup that Chelsea put out there wasn't going to give him any service out wide and Crystal Palace has sat on Jorginho and Conte and didn't let there be anything fluid through the middle and he was just left out to dry and there's only so much that guy can do by himself so you know, I, if, if, if they had had the lineup they had today where they had proper wingbacks and Espelicueta and Marcus Alonso, I don't think we'd be talking about Lukaku only getting seven touches against Palace last week. Yeah, JJ, you know, we just had a good question pop up from David about uh, Thiago Silva. I mean, do you think he was a man of the match performance uh, for this team? I mean, what do you think was the difference? Obviously, Lille didn't seem great, but what do you think made Chelsea sort of effective in the way that we've, we've looked at Chelsea over, over at least last season, less so this year, but last season, the way that they just got the result by, by sort of grinding? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, typical efficiency, the kind of efficiency that I expect from, from Thomas Tuchel's sides. Uh, you know, I think they even wasted a great chance for the goal with the Habits uh, opportunity early on that, that you mentioned that he missed. Um, I, I, for me, I wouldn't put it up there sort of with, you know, Thiago Silva's absolute best performances I've ever seen him put out there, but that's because I've seen so many of them. Uh, you know, he just, uh, you know, Silva's level of consistency and performance for years now has, has just been so much higher than so many other players in that position. You know, he he truly is an elite defender. Uh, you know, he's the kind of uh, player that, you know, you show your kids if your kid decides they want to be a defender. Mm-hmm. You know, you're showing them the likes of Jimmy Conrad. You're showing them the likes of Jimmy <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Conrad. <laughs> how, how did I get left out? Of, how did I get left keep out? Of, going, keep be, going, keep going, JJ. Obviously, obviously, you know, you're going to have like VHS tapes of uh, Heath Pierce's greatest hits <laughs> with Hans oh. Rostock as well. It's, uh, it's oh. man. It's uh, it, no. Honestly, Silver is just he, he's a cut above. Uh, even though he's getting on, you know, he's just a step ahead of everyone mentally. You know, you can see him anticipating the stuff that's going to happen. Perhaps it helped that you know he and Tuchel, you know, they know what to expect from Lille, given the, that they were in competition with them up until a, a year or so ago. But you know, I, I just think that it, it's it's not almost too easy, but. You know, Silva has has been around the block so many times. He knows exactly sort of just how much he needs to put into these games, uh, you know, to to sort of stand out above the rest. And that's that's exactly what he did. 
Jimmy, let me ask you this, uh, because of the injury concerns with Ziek and Kovacic, I mean, how much of that hangs in the balance for the potential success? Obviously, we continue to question what the best 11 from Chelsea is, and they've clearly got depth to sort of rotate constantly. But do you think this is a little bit of a concern, uh, considering they've got a little bit of this cushion in the Champions League, but they've also got this very difficult uh, schedule coming up, as you mentioned? Well, I think what we've learned is that they play best in a certain formation when they have their three center backs and they have their two wing backs, even if it is Azpilicueta getting up and down the sideline. He might not have all the top ability that maybe or or the youth as as a Reese James might, but but he does provide an understanding of how to move within the system. And I think the team just flows better when they play with four in the back like they did against Crystal Palace. That's just the most recent example. They just they look stifled. They look uh, they don't look as free flowing or fluid when they try to transition. I thought Angola Conte was fantastic today. I thought he picked up the spots in good in, in good areas and and drove the ball forward, which ultimately led to Pulisic's goal. And the more that they can do with, with that, I thought Lille was a little bit, maybe they were trying to get back in the game, but they they definitely left some spaces open that I thought Chelsea did a very good job of exploiting. And, and when Chelsea are playing at, at that type of level and, and uh, taking advantage of, of, of teams in transition, they are very, very good and hard to beat. Um, but overall, with those two losses, I mean, Jorginho wasn't available for this one, so... You had Saul. I forgot he actually played for Chelsea. Uh, coming on, on Ruben, Ruben uh, Loftus-Cheek comes on. But I think it actually spells uh, good for, if I'm looking at it through the lenses of a U.S. men's national team fan, that Christian Pulisic will probably get another run out. And I just want to say, we haven't really talked about him yet. Fantastic goal. The first touch, obviously, is awesome. But the second touch is even better because it's a little soft touch to see what the goalkeeper is going to do and how he's going to charge out. And then he has a nice little third touch to lift it over him. When he plays in his best position and gets minutes, you can tell that he's got the trust of the manager, whether that's just because the manager didn't have any other options or whatever it is, you can see him rise to the occasion. So long may this form continue because we're desperately going to need him here in the next uh, qualifying window. Yeah, I fully agree. And you could just see that comfort when he gets the ball and he starts to drive inside and he starts to shift a lot of those players to his left foot and starts to cut back inside. And when he does that best, there's very few players that I know of, uh, American or not, that, that can do it at that level in the combination play and changing the point of attack, driving in on his on his preferred foot. And obviously you can see there, most UCL goals by US International Christian Pulisic, and he's still so young and has so far to go. It's funny, I'm not going to talk about Jordan Pifak at the bottom of that list because uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a soft subject for us right now. But JJ, let me ask you this. My, my, my final question on, on, on Chelsea in general is, based on the sample from today, the efficiency of their game, and again, an inferior opponent or the form of an inferior opponent in Lille, has is the is is the ceiling different with this Chelsea side, or do you still think they're going to run into the same issues like they have all year long? Or you did you see something out of the ordinary from their performance today, or was it more to the more more closer to the lines of the fact they were just better than Lille? No, I just think there was a, a significant gulf in in class. I mean, I'm not ready to sort of write Chelsea off and say they're going to get to a certain point of the season, but not go much further. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't sort of want to rule out a potential, uh, you know, title defense just yet. I just don't think that they're quite as strong as some of the other the, the other challenges. You know, I, I think City, certainly in terms of the, the performances put in so far, you know, look like the team to beat. Uh, you know, obviously we've got Ajax to look forward to on Wednesday and they've got a 100% record. But, uh, you know, this Chelsea, I mean, I think there's still things that could disra- uh, you know, derail them a, a little bit because I'm looking at that defence when we were talking about it earlier. You know, we're still waiting for Christensen and Rudiger to sort out their futures. Uh, you know, Silva is just one sort of muscle twinge, uh, you know, away from being a, a pretty big loss for them, uh, you know, given, a, given his influence. 
uh, and and as Piliqueta as well, not getting any younger like uh, like you guys mentioned. So for me, I I think that this Chelsea side, you know, they they're going to go further. They're going to advance past Lille. I'm pretty confident in that. Uh, you know, and I think they'll probably go another round or two more. But sort of based on tonight, uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to need to see them raise their game a couple more levels before I sort of take them mm-hmm. really seriously as as potential champion material. Well, Jimmy, as you can see from the from the gra- graphic up on the screen, teams haven't fared well. Obviously, we've got a little recency bias because you go before that to Real Madrid, and there was you know a team they fared quite well uh, year after year. But uh, in, in these last couple of years, teams kind of not being able to live up to the standard that they set the season before. Do you feel any differently about this Chelsea? Do they have enough tools to to potentially make a run or grind out something, or or is they, they're just eventually going to come up against an opponent that's too good uh, for 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 them to continue? I guess we have to wait to see what the draw looks like. I'll say with reference to Bayern Munich last season, if Robert Lewandowski hadn't been hurt for that those two legs against PSG, I think we'd be talking about a different Bayern run, potentially back to the final or at least close to it. Liverpool, yes, they didn't win the, the Champions League that year, but they went on to win the Premier League for the first time in 30 years. So maybe they're... And the pandemic was hitting at the same time. So there was a lot to maybe focus on. So I don't know. It's it's uh, yeah. The Are you making device. a bunch of excuses for that not being a real? Stat? I'm just, to me, it just what I'm, like you don't... what I'm saying is I think that Chelsea do have all the players and ideas and philosophy and methodologies to to get back to the final. I do think to JJ's point, there's going to have to be a step up. We have seen some of their vulnerabilities in the league where they can't really keep it going consistently. They haven't actually been scoring a ton of goals. It's actually pleasantly surprised to see them score two tonight even against the Lille team that was opened up a little bit so so I don't know I think um I want to see what the draw looks like but but Thomas Tuchel is so good in these competitions he's so good at masterminding and JJ's talked about this ad nauseum about how good he is in this when he can just focus on one opponent doesn't have to think about 10 months of opponents of a league when he can just really get into the details and I think he's so good at communicating to his team how to do that. And when you have the confidence of winning the competition before you trust that manager in a way that you, maybe you wouldn't have if he hadn't won anything previous. So especially with this group of players, I can't count them out at this point. I'd, I'd still throw them in as, as one of the favorites to win it. Well said, Jimmy. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to continue our champions league conversations with Villarreal Juventus. We'll be right back. This episode is supported by FX's clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, everyone, we are back. Don't be shy. Get into the mix. Get some comments in. Producer Des will throw the best ones up on the screen or any ones that he feels 
are important or not important. Maybe it just throws them all up. Or, 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 just, or just the only ones. <laughs> or the only ones. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. Jimmy's the only one that throws comments into the comment section while he's talking. I've got so many movie. burner accounts. He's got, he's got three monitors, two two keyboards, and all kinds of stuff going on over there, plus an entire team and a staff that works for him full time. So he's got people throwing in comments everywhere. In fact, I'm pretty sure he paid for that compliment that JJ gave, putting him and Tiago Silva into the same conversation. But let's talk about Villarreal Juventus. So Weston limps off. Uh, couldn't he put, couldn't put any weight on his left foot, Jimmy, in terms of the implications of that? Is it something we should be reading into? I mean, oddly, I, I saw Pulisic limping for a bit and I get real nervous because he tracked back that 50, 60 yard run and then was limping for a minute. I'm like, oh man, that he just pulled up with a hamstring chasing somebody down. But Weston McKinney actually looked like he, he took it, something's up. What would, this is me highly speculative, uh, my comments here, but I feel like when you get an ankle injury, when I watch the highlight, watch the replay of the the tackle from Estupignan a couple times, it looks more like it catches him on the foot in some ways, like his foot tweaks as opposed to his ankle. And the only reason I say that, because when he's limping off, I broke my foot. And anytime I had an ankle injury, I'd always try to like try to walk it off. Like, no, no, I can do it. I can, I can do this. But when you break your foot, there's not a chance in goddamn hell you're going to put any weight on it whatsoever. Like you're not even going to, you know that it's trouble. And, and that's what it looked like to me based on my, my, my experiences as a player that, that when I had both of those injuries, uh, I would always try to walk off an ankle injury, at least try to see how much weight I could put on it to at that, at that particular moment, go like, ah, uh, I feel 60%. I bet you it's only two weeks. You know, you do yeah. whatever stupid stuff you do as an athlete, when you try to have, you think you've got, you know, you're invincible. You, you come up with all these different little mind tricks to figure out where you are and how you stand and, and how healthy you think you're going to be in a minute's or a moment's notice. But I feel like when him limping off and not putting any weight on it is, is a major concern for me. Major concern. JJ Vlaovic, first Champions League match, first goal. I mean, James Benj is not here, so this is a safe space. Do you agree that he's over, <laughs> you agree that he's overrated? With, do you agree with James that, that Vlaovic is overrated? I mean, what, what's your take on him so far? I mean, obviously... The uh, Allegri's comments came out recently about him not knowing how to play two matches a week, and he's got a lot to learn, and you know the different types of team, the like style of play, and all these types of things. I mean, do you think he's overrated, or are we seeing you know instant impact uh, in a credible way? No, I don't think that he's overrated. I just don't think that we've seen enough of him, given his age, to necessarily say whether he's uh, you know worthy of being sort of considered world class. I mean, he certainly looks like he's on his way to to that bracket at this moment in time, given his form for for Fiorentina. But you know, uh, you know, referencing what Allegri said, I mean, yeah, all of this is is still completely new to him. I mean, what a way to introduce yourself to the Champions League. You know, scoring you know immediately after starting on your debut, fantastic finish as well. Uh, you know, I, I think he just needs to, you know, be given a bit of time, you know, sort of, I don't know, maybe have his first full season in the, the competition, you know, really get to know what it's like at the top, top level, you know, with all due respect to, to Fiorentina, a club that I, I have a lot of fondness for, um, you know, because that's exactly what he's going to be getting at, uh, at the institution that is uh, Juventus. Uh, you know, he's going to be expected to challenge for Serie A titles, Coppa Italia titles, you know, to to make a, a real impact in the Champions League as well. And, you know, he's he's started as he means to go on. So I'm I'm not quite ready to to throw out there yet that he's he is world class. But, he, you know, he's definitely one of the most informed attacking players on the continent at this moment in time, if not the most. Uh, I just think it's maybe a bit early to, to judge and say, yeah, he's world class or no, he's he's trash, he's overrated. 
JJ's drinking, JJ's, JJ's drinking that anti-Vlahovic Kool-Aid that he's sharing with James Benz right now. Yeah. That was a world-class goal. I mean, the fact uh, that that recognition, that that early, I know it's just a goal and it's just one play. But it's a quick maybe. release and it's a strike when you're off balance. Okay. Keeper hasn't set his feet. You don't just, expect somebody to shoot from there. Yeah, recognition, awareness. I think he he purposely tried to hit it on the other side of the defender because I thought there was a little bit of a brief pause to wait to see where the defender was setting Albiol there. Because I when I looked at Albiol's defending there, the captain of Villarreal, I thought, all right, I, I don't think I would have done much different there. Sometimes you just got to hat tip the, the goal score and be like, all right, that was, that was a pretty good play. Now, can Vlahovic do more over those 90 minutes? Can he be even more influential? I think that's ultimately, and JJ, I'm just giving you a hard time, of, of what I don't feel like he put as much of a stance. Like he did his job. He scored in the first minute of his first ever game in the Champions League. And and not that he relaxed. He's always still going to give you that effort. But was it the... That the was he as efficient as he could be with his effort? Was it enough to bring more of his team into the game? Could they've held on to that lead based on something that he did by holding up the ball? These little nuances and subtleties that I think will only come from experience, of course, as JJ says, but also playing in the system under Maxi Allegri. I do feel like they missed the ball a little bit in this particular game. Just that one link up player that is so good between the lines that could release Vlahovic to stay a little bit higher up the field. So, so. I mean, what a goal, though. I just didn't want to take anything away from, from that goal and then just that that uh, awareness so early on in a game. And here's a fun fact. He scored in 36 seconds. And I was like, oh, I wonder how, what the fastest goal in Champions League history is. Do you guys remember what it was? Any guesses? Seven seconds. No. JJ? Uh, I'm going to go for something less than 2018. 10 seconds. Roy Mackay. Roberto Carlos made a mistake. 2007. Ball Roy gets played Mackay. in. Wow. Roy Mackay, who looks kind of like Luis Suarez, which is kind of weird. But but he scores 10 seconds in Bayern Munich versus Real Madrid in 2007. 10 seconds. That's crazy. And there was there was three other goals that were 20 seconds. So Dusan Vlahovic at 36 seconds is the fifth fastest goal in Champions League history. Wow, Roy Mackay. I <laughs> I just didn't expect anybody <laughs> to say Roy Mackay for the rest of my life. But wow, what a player he was, by the way. Um uh, JJ. The spine of this team different, right? Obviously, we 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 want Weston McKinney in there, but now he seems to be sort of a little bit more of an attacking threat and and deployed closer to the wing than than up the spine of the of the of the, of the team there with Delik Blokotelli and Vlahovic. Uh, did did you like what you saw in, in this match? I and mean, obviously, they they gave up the draw in this one, playing away from home, which I think fares well for them. But when you think about Juventus and the form that they've been in, you you do sort of expect them to be able to at least if they get a lead, keep that lead against uh, a Via Real side. Uh, disclaimer before I go on to, to chat about this, I was obliged to spend more time watching Chelsea uh, little than uh, than this game. But the, the one thing that I will say, uh, having kept an eye on it, is I feel like history is repeating itself with Adrien Rabiot. Uh, I feel like he's a big question mark in this Juve team and he he's in such an important position that I don't really think, uh, I mean, James Benj actually, funny enough, I think dropped into Slack earlier, a very good description of him that he's so often a passenger in these games. I mean, I know that there's big controversy that we'll probably get on to discuss regarding Rabiot in a couple of minutes, but sort of in terms of what he actually like brings to the party, you know, I'm, I'm sort of asking myself now, it's been a couple of years since he's moved out there and I, he hasn't kicked on the way that I expected him to and the way that I'm sure he would have done at PSG if he'd agreed to play in the position that he was being asked to play in, which is more of a holding role in the midfield. Uh, and, you know, I, I just, it, it feels very frustrating. I, I'm not I'm not trying to single him out because there's a couple of other guys within the Juve squad who I feel can, you know, maybe do better at times. 
you know, but Rabio is one who particularly frustrates me because I know how brilliant he can be on his day. It's just that, you know, those days are sort of two out of 10 matches. That's well said. Jimmy, uh, uh, Weston McKinney, do you like him when he's closer to the wing? Is he a straight up central midfielder for you? Is he, is he an eight? Is he an eight and a half kind of higher up the field? I mean, it seems like he has tools in every one of these types of positions, but sometimes you run the risk of that of not actually knowing which what you're best at. Right? Are you a two way midfielder? Are you a are you a are you a, a an all out attacking type of player? Could that be deployed in the national team? I mean, what's your take on this before we see you out? Yeah, I got to go do some CBS Sports HQ, everybody. But my my final thoughts here for the pod, and I appreciate you guys having me on about Weston McKinney. I like him kind of at an eight and a half, to be honest. I like him higher up the field because he does have this commitment to take risk. Now, some coaches might not like that. And maybe even Maxi Allegri at times is like, oh, Weston, don't go forward. You're going to leave us a little bit vulnerable in midfield or whatever it is. But I think he's getting better at making those choices as to when to join the attack and maybe when to sit in and around and just be more of a support player to create an angle to maybe connect those passes. He's only going to get better at that. But the fact that he has that in him, in his DNA, he likes to attack. He likes to take those risks. He likes to bomb forward. And as you know, or, or and I think everybody can speak to it, if you're a center back and you're marking a striker, and then all of a sudden this, this midfielder comes out of nowhere, it's hard for a CDM to track that runner in. So all of a sudden you got to try to mark two players, and McKinney's very good at getting on the end of those types of crosses. And so as his decision-making continues to mature and evolve, he's only going to become more and more valuable to Juve or any other team that he plays for, including the U.S. men's national team. But I like him a little bit more central. I think it gives him more opportunities if he starts centrally to pick his spots as to when he wants to maybe go out into a wider channel to go get it, if you can see that's where the space is. Or if he wants to join the attack, he's a little bit closer to making that happen. But uh, yeah, the future is bright for Weston McKinney. I'm super bummed that he got hurt. And uh, I wish we would have got to see him finish out this game and obviously play in leg two, but I don't know. Who do you got in leg two, Jimmy? And then you can just click that Uh, button just to disappear on us. No, I I think uh, Juve at home. It's going to be hard to beat. I think Maxi Allegri is going to have it going. I do want to give a shout-out to Villarreal, though. Unai Emery, obviously, this isn't the Europa League where he's a master, but it's still a knockout competition, and you can't sleep on them, especially if they get Gerard Moreno back, because I thought that they really missed Gerard Moreno today. They were in and around the box a lot, but kind of missed that that clinical finisher in and around the box. But super organized team, obviously tough to break down. So I could see it going to a draw again, and then maybe an extra time. That's where Juve ends up winning it. But uh, if Villarreal somehow scraped through and got the points I, or, and got the, the victory, I wouldn't be surprised either. But but that, because there's a couple weeks between leg two and leg one, then, then it's possible that uh, everybody can get healthy and we'll see where it goes from there. So that's me straddling the fence. Thanks for having me, everybody. It's always been a pleasure. Peace out, Lena. All right, producer Des, let's uh, let's get that that graphic back up on the screen. I think that's an important one. Take a look at that um, here, and obviously you can see these group stage results. He talked about Unai Emery, JJ. Uh, I mean, obviously it's not the Europa League where he is the specialist, but they they weren't fantastic uh, in the group stages. But it was a difficult group for a team like Villarreal, and they were able to get out on the final day versus Atalanta. Do you think this is too far for them to overcome against this Juventus side in the second leg playing away from home? Or do you think there's a legitimate chance? Because obviously, on paper, they're they're, they're very much in this. And it wasn't like they were played off the pitch for long periods. They actually looked quite good. And like Jimmy said, they were just missing a little bit around the box. That changes when you're away from home and the tactics do as well. But a 1-1 draw at home certainly feels like some result if you're Unai Emery. 
Yeah, I don't think it's a disastrous result at all. I mean, especially now that we're not talking about away goals. Uh, you know, and I think when you look at the the quality that Villarreal have, especially if they can get Moreno back for some stretch at some point in the season, you know, that makes a huge difference. My my big worry for Villarreal is is not necessarily whether they can get past Juve uh, in the in the second leg. I think in in any given game, they can definitely uh, you know frustrate their opponents and and potentially even you know beat them snatch the victory uh i worry about the situation they find themselves in in la liga where they're looking upwards towards the european positions trying to catch up uh you know with that uh chasing pack uh at the at the top of the table and you know trying to keep pushing ahead uh in the champions league as well it's it's almost like it's going to be one or the other. And I feel that if they do manage to get past Juve, then perhaps their La Liga form will suffer. Uh, and if they go out, then at least they can fully concentrate on, on La Liga. You know, they started the season pretty slowly. Uh, and, you know, they added an important piece in Danuma quite late in the transfer window as well. Uh, I get the feeling that they're a team who are going to be a bigger threat next season. But obviously, we don't know where they're going to finish in La Liga at the moment or how this Champions League campaign is going to pan out. So it's up to them. They're the masters of their own destiny. Uh, in an exclusive that uh, Luis Miguel Echigaray had with Dan Yuma a couple of weeks ago, he was basically saying, you know, it's up to them, uh, you know, whether or not they finish in the top four. They, they definitely have it within them, within that group. Uh, it's just, you know, up to them to to, to make the, the best of it. I think that they can, uh, you know, spring a, a bit of a surprise and, and knock Juve out. But also at the same time, you know, this Juve side has come a long way, uh, you know, in the last uh, couple of months because at the beginning of the season, they were pretty horrible to watch. Uh, you know, there's more... Uh, of a structure now that Allegri has got into place. His feet are firmly back under the table since returning. Um, you know, so this one's going to be a really fascinating second leg. Could go either way. Uh, and honestly, it wouldn't surprise me with either side going through. But I just feel like for Villarreal, it's not maybe the best moment for them to be trying to juggle, uh, you know, both domestic and continental uh, competitions. Well, the upside for them is that in the last five, they're unbeaten, right? I think they have one loss in their last seven, and that included draw against Atletico Madrid. That included a draw against Real Madrid. That included a win against Real Betis, and now another draw against Juventus. So they're certainly in matches in ways that, you know, like you said, the slow start to the season, the fact that they're not in a European position and they're they're trending in that right direction. It'd be easy to sort of cave in now, but it seems like they're sort of picking up a little bit of a, a steam or a belief system and their ability to get out and hopefully finish the season and a European oh, But that's also what Emery teams do in the, in the Europa League. So if they can sort of extrapolate that into the, into the Champions League, you know, who knows? Maybe it lands them a, a quarterfinal berth. That's well said. Let's, let's, let's move on to uh, the UEFA and the fact that, uh, you know, there's, being, there's considerations now being made about where this match in uh, St. Petersburg uh, might be played. Are you hearing anything, I guess, from your side? Is there anything legitimate? And if so, if there was a move, have they predetermined? I know that there are usually predetermined plan B, plan C's um, out there, but is there, what are you hearing on your end? Yeah, where's uh, where, where's Jimmy when you need him to uh, to to weigh in first on the controversial issue? <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> for, for, from what I've read so far, um, you know, obviously this is a this is a this is a very sensitive topic at the moment, not just in a, in a football sense, but uh, you know, in the wider 
uh, global political sense as well. Uh, you know, I, I can't see how it wouldn't be a consideration, you know, given the escalation of tension over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, the, the reports in France certainly suggest that discussions are already underway to potentially move it somewhere. I've seen Wembley, uh, you know, bandied about as a, a, a potential destination for any re potentially rearranged final. I guess, you know, the sort of precedent that we can point to with regards to this kind of stuff is the fact that UEFA have had to try to be flexible uh, due to COVID the last couple of years. So we have, uh, you know, seen matches moved, venues changed, uh, you know, so the, the there is a possibility of, of that happening. But, you know, it seems like so the things are changing uh, all the time, you know, given the, all the different declarations, the rising tension, uh, you know, Schalke, who, uh, you know, are very strongly sponsored by Gazprom, uh, have basically said they're keeping a very close eye on, on everything that's going on, uh, you know, and, and obviously hoping that uh, there can be some sort of peaceful resolution. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I think everybody is hoping that, uh, you know, there is some sort of step down uh, in the in the recent escalation. But in terms of whether it's likely to see a final uh, in St. Petersburg at this moment in time, it's uh, it, it's difficult to uh, to to say yes because it it just seems like a, a a very untenable situation every time you turn the news on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't have much more to say to that. You know, I usually, like you said, we let Jimmy uh, jump into those um, into those waters before <laughs> we just follow up with uh, our our take of sitting on the fence. But Des, let's talk about uh, let's quickly uh, touch on tomorrow's matches. We'll throw up a a a, a graphic. Uh, of what we have for for tomorrow, Atletico Madrid, Man United, Benfica against Ajax. Obviously, all of those 3 p.m. Eastern time on CBS and Paramount Plus. Make sure you tune into those. JJ, I mean, are you are any of one of these two matches more exciting to you? And if so, why? Infinitely, uh, you know, I'm I'm really really excited to watch Benfica Ajax and Atletico Madrid United is probably up there among the worst draws that I could possibly imagine. Uh, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to to covering Benfica Ajax in the uh, in the uh, the match updates tomorrow. Uh, it's for for me, I think it's a, a really fascinating battle. You know, Ajax, uh, as I mentioned earlier. You know, one of the informed teams in the Champions League so far, 100% winning record. Uh, Benfica, you know, really, really interesting sort of makeup to their squad. Got some very, very talented players. Uh, you know, both teams have very prolific attackers in uh, in Haller and Nunez. Uh, you know, but they also have gifted creators as well. You've got Rafa Silva for Benfica. You've got Dusan Tadic for, for Ajax. So I think that's going to be really fascinating to see how that one plays out. Uh, and, I, and I can't wait for it. And with United Atleti, I just I, I felt so underwhelmed by both of these teams at various points this season when we've been discussing them. I know that Atleti have picked up slightly more of late, but United, it just, I don't know, it just feels like Groundhog Day all the time. Every time I come on and we're discussing United, whether it was under Solskjaer, whether it was under Randiak now, uh, you know, I, it just feels like the situation never really changes. So, uh, you know, I, I hope that I'm proved wrong and it turns into an absolute classic. But, you know, really looking at it on paper, I, I, I'm not expecting fireworks uh, in that one. It seems to me that Ajax, especially, you know, being the unbeaten team in, in Champions League in such great form, it's just such a long window to not see them. And obviously, I watch some games in, in the Eredivisie, but I'm going through the resu their results right now. And you talk about some of their, like, weaponry that they have in the attack and, I mean, it's five nils, three nils, four nils. Nine nil in the cup yeah. as well. <laughs> nine nil in the cup. The round before that, they won five nil in the cup. And so uh, it's just, 
it's a lot of uh, a dominant attack performances, which you expect uh, from Ajax traditionally. Do you think that form still holds up now in the knockout rounds? They're playing against a completely different type of opponent. They haven't faced an opponent of this level in probably a couple months. Yes, they played uh, PSV a month or so ago and, and, and were able to win and have a little bit gap at the top of the table now. But, but do you think that it's difficult to prepare going back into the Champions League after a break like this? I mean, I think, uh, you know, you have to look at that PSV performance and say that's probably, you know, the most like a, a European game for them in terms of in terms of quality with with all due respect to the teams that they've come up against. It's, you know, a very impressive 10 consecutive matches uh, winning run that, that they're on at the moment. But, uh, you know, I mean, I kind of feel like this is this is kind of how people see like teams like PSG, uh, you know, coming and, and Bayern coming into their Champions League games, like they're just absolutely romping against all of their domestic opponents when it's not necessarily the case. But for Ajax, I feel that, you know, at this moment in time, they're just utterly dominant and they're they're so dominant because they've moved away ever so slightly from this policy that we've always associated with Ajax of having young players. Because with the addition of some slightly more experienced guys, the likes of Tadic, you know, Daily Blind coming back, Haller, who's sort of in his mid-20s and not quite in the early 20s bracket that you'd expect from Ajax players. With that bit of experience, Taliafico as well, uh, you know, suddenly they have a lot more experience. They're able to sort of regulate these performances. And okay, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, that counts for more in terms of the goals and the sizes of the victories they're getting in the Eredivisie. But I don't think that they'll look out to their depth, uh, you know, once they get back into Champions League action. I don't, I don't think it's, uh, you know, going to come as too much of a shock to the system. And perhaps this is where the draw plays into their favour as well, because, yeah, they're coming up against a Benfica side with a lot of talented players, no doubt. But also this is a Benfica side that, yes, they, they beat Barca um, at home and drew away. But also, you know, they did still get uh, a bunch of goals stuck past them by Bayern Munich. So they're definitely a beatable opponent. And I think playing away first for Ajax uh, is a good thing, uh, you know, because it'll challenge them to raise their game. And then obviously at home, uh, we've seen in the in the last couple of years that anything is possible for Ajax when they're playing at Amsterdam Arena in the in Europe. And it's uh, I, I just feel that right now this Ajax side are kind of primed to deliver. And I actually wonder if this might be the last season for some of them to be performing at such a high level, especially when you're looking at somebody like Tadic, who's in his 30s, you know, and you just wonder how long he can keep up this fantastic form that he's in. Well, it's like you said, you know, when you shift away from sort of the traditional teenagers into early 20s and you have the selling model, it takes the pressure off when you get into certain rounds because it's, it's a nice to have, but it's not the mandatory thing. The player development is the main thing. But when you start to take chances, have a record-breaking transfer in, in Hilaire and you have the run that they're on, it can only last so long before that rotation has to continue. And that's the hard part of building sort of that hybrid model between player development and then trying to, yeah, domestically win trophies, but try to do something in Europe is certainly different. But any closing thoughts uh, for you, JJ, before we uh, close this thing out? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're just uh, here doing the, you know, sort of a hot take just after the action. You know, unfortunately, it sounds like the the, the early uh, feedback regarding Western McKinney is, uh, is is not good. Uh, obviously, we had a similar scare with uh, with Borussia Dortmund and Gio Reyna. Uh, you know, just fingers crossed that, uh, you know, it's, it's not as serious as perhaps uh, people are making out. But, you know, it is obviously really worrying, uh, you know, worrying for, for, for us as lovers of, of, of great soccer in the Champions League, but especially worrying for you guys with the, the U.S. men's national team as well. So fingers crossed it's not quite as bad as it initially sounds, but... 
it you know it is it is a worry yeah as jimmy mentioned that that sort of lack of ability to put your foot uh, weight on your foot is concerning and now with reports coming out that perhaps it's a fracture certainly not what we want to hear as U u.s men's national team fans or any fans in general don't want to see anybody getting hurt but uh that is it for us thank you all for watching and or listening Fa follow sorry k golasso podcast on twitter at k golasso pod subscribe to the k golasso page on youtube and hit the notification bell and of course subscribe to k golasso wherever you get your podcast and from uh, myself our producer des norris jj and of course jimmy conrad who joined us earlier thank you guys so much and we will see you all soon You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.